This week on the Backtable Podcast. So that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question. So the Affordable Care Act came in in 2010 and it's now 2023 and we are supposed to see a complete paradigm shift in how we're reimbursed and we are all still largely reimbursed on a fee-for-service benchmark. So even the hospitals who have the opportunity to engage in some of these risk-sharing models, really there's been very nominal innovation in this. And I'm not discounting the tremendous amount of work that any number of patient organizations, hospital systems, metropolitan systems have done. But it turns out healthcare is a big lift and reforming healthcare is a big lift. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Mara Holton, who's the CEO and president of AA Urology and the chair of the LUCPA Large Urology Group Practice Association Health Policy. Mara, how are you doing this evening? I'm great and delighted to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as I was kind of preparing for this episode, I was super excited. The AUA PAC advocacy meeting is taking place here in just about a month. And I, I actually feel like LUGPA has, has been just an absolutely critical organization membership to really push forward a lot of the initiatives that help patients, that help providers. And I, I personally feel like, you know, on the academic side, there's just a tremendous amount that we can learn from each other. I thought we'd just start out, Mara, by having you share a little bit about your journey. How did you get interested in health policy? Um, what does that mean for you? Why is this important? So we can just take it one at a time. How did you get involved and interested in health policy? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, it's been Really a tremendous honor and privilege to work with LUGPA, but I should mention also with AUA and AACU and other stakeholders within urology. That's probably been the most, it's certainly one of the most compelling portions of this portion of my career is the opportunity to work with people in different types of clinical settings. So how did I get into LUGPA, urology, all of that stuff? I'll spare you the tremendously boring details, but I took a pretty indirect path. I got a college degree in philosophy and a several-year detour in Europe. <laughs> I ended up doing some federal-level lobbying, and serendipitously, they put me in charge of a health policy portfolio at that first position. And then I moved actually beyond that into some state-level health policy lobbying and politics. And the health policy was very compelling and ultimately ended up in medical school. So medical school, residency, clinical practice, and then a decade and a half later, I sort of became tangentially aware of LUGPA and the health policy initiatives and found myself kind of full circle back to, uh, you know, my early 20s. Fantastic. So uh, I think it's safe to say that you have some formal experience and expertise in health policy. And I'm guessing one fine day you were like, you know what, I think that at a systems level, we could do better for our patients, we could do better for ourselves. You know, I think that's actually remarkably astute. Essentially, you know, we operate within this silo. Residency is so all-consuming. Junior practice years are so compelling. You're focused on getting your C-legs, solidifying your skills, 
You've got to get a patient base. You need to manage the routine and chaos of daily life. You might be married. You might have little children. I did. And you forget that we're part of a, a critical infrastructure healthcare system. Um, so you're very myopic in your practice. And it's really been an extraordinary experience to come back into that with the degree of expertise that I now have and be able to advocate on behalf of my colleagues as well as our patients. And when we're talking about subjects, policy, advocacy, I feel like they could they can be these very abstract, nebulous terms. Can you maybe just summarize, if that's even possible, what health policy means for you? Yeah, I'll do that. And then I'll explain sort of uh, the space-time continuum and I'll put it all in sort of a very quick summary for you. But um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Health policy is incredibly nebulous and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of define how we can intersect. Fundamentally, I think that we lose track of the fact that the way we get paid and the way that the system elects to remunerate and reimburse our work impacts how our patients get cared for. So fundamentally, we're all in healthcare and we're all in medicine because we're passionate about taking care of patients. Certainly, that's whether, you know, that's uniformly true, whether you're doing bench research or taking care of patients. The, the goal is always sort of that improvement in quality of care. And unfortunately, the system is nuanced and complex. And fundamentally, in order to protect things like innovation and access and infrastructure, we have to get into the weeds of these details of how healthcare is delivered and paid for. So I don't know that that's a really effective definition, but I do think that perhaps that sums it up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes when topics get more and more complex, then the explanations get a little bit more condensed. And I, I would go back to basically system-wide efforts, and that system might be within a practice policy, local, regional, state, national, that ultimately leads to better patient outcomes and also better physician outcomes, whether that's burnout, whether that's compensation, whether that's fairness, whether that's autonomy, that's up to any given individual. But that's maybe how I see it. What do you think about that? Well, so I was actually going to congratulate you for calling that out, Adidia, because I think that that's one of the most ignored pillars of healthcare infrastructure and reform. The AUA, I really congratulate on at this advocacy summit, focusing on workforce issues, which are so fundamental to healthcare. So every single one of us is both a deliverer of healthcare and also either a consumer of healthcare directly or related to someone who is a consumer of healthcare or eventually will be a consumer of healthcare. So it is incredibly important for the sustainability of the system and the improvement of the system that we identify ways to make our workforce broader, more effective, mentally healthy, physically resilient, emotionally resilient, all those sorts of things. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, of course, we'll talk about some of the pressing health policy issues facing medicine patients, urologists over the course of the conversation. But I thought it might be helpful if we kind of frame this in the context of maybe an initiative, a success story of health policy, advocacy, legislation, perhaps through LUGPA, perhaps that you're familiar with, that you've been involved with. Can you share something like that? 
So again, I hate to bring everything back to payment and payment reform, but fundamentally that's an issue that I'm really passionate about because I do think that it's broadly impactful and it goes to the health of our profession, the health of our patients, the health of our country and all those, you know, essentially all of those factors. So I would say that LUGPA has worked and works continuously to mitigate physician fee schedule cuts these past several years. Now, this is not a super auspicious year because we are seeing across the House of Medicine a broad fee, a broad fee schedule cut. But LUGPA was incredibly pivotal in the COVID reform package in preserving some of the funding opportunities which were able to go to practitioners in independent settings outside of sort of the broader reform package, which really was very focused on hospitals, recognizing that that those practices are an integral component of the system and we're going to have to be functioning, presuming that COVID ended and we all lived, basically. So that was actually tremendously impactful to those of us who were functioning outside of an institutional setting. I think, again, you hit on some really critical issues, preserving things like the autonomy of doctors to establish the appropriate testing for their patients. So not at a national level, although there is some consideration, but PSA testing reform. So obviously the U.S. PSTF recommendations changed our landscape quite a lot. And LUGBA's continued to be active both at the state and federal level, along with AUA and AACU, at, at reevaluating those indications. And then transparency from the vantage point, site neutrality and transparency. So from the vantage point of reform, again, so that patients and consumers of healthcare have access to information. You know, there have been any number of really pretty significant initiatives. I actually was on a website recently just looking at the cost to get a procedure at a hospital. Now, I will admit it's a very large file. It was not an easy one to download <laughs> because that's, I think, the intent. But 20 years ago, I had a cholecystectomy and I called the hospital because my surgeon was not in network and I wanted who I wanted. And I said, well, you know, I'm a healthy 32-year-old woman. Can I just pay for this out of pocket? And there was literally no ability to even quote me a price. So things have changed. They've shifted. Yeah, that's that's really super helpful. And, you know, thinking about these case series and how nebulous and large the system gets is crazy. And, you know, I was, I was preparing for this talk and reflecting, even over the course of my professional year, we've seen some relatively major macro changes from the president of our country, Obamacare, shifting from new presidencies and, and new health policies with Trump and then Biden. And I kind of thought about it. I was a little bit embarrassed over these last, you know, call it eight, 10 years. I still kind of go to work. I see patients. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, VA, et cetera. I get a salary. I, I try to do my best to take care of patients. I go on, I get beyond it. But clearly there's huge things, layering COVID, telehealth that impact me. You know, if I can't get paid for a telehealth visit today, that seems like it's an issue. It's a problem. So I absolutely appreciate that, you know, somebody's kind of advocating on my behalf, on our behalf, on our patient's behalf. And again, I feel a little bit of sheepish that it's not me. Well, I think you alluded to it perfectly. And I want to say that all of us are in the hamster wheel of taking care of patients. So it is hard to find time to understand these candidly, oftentimes boring issues. So you're talking about 
The physician fee schedule is about a 3,000-page rule that they typically release on, I think, July 4th weekend. So that's something I always look forward to and, you know, just sort of a, grab a drink and sit there and read it for the next two and a half days. So, you know, these are very complex, challenging issues. And I don't think that any of us should be chagrined about our ability to be directly involved in them or understand them. But I do think that we are all obligated to recognize that whether we like it or not, the choices that are being made at the state and federal legislative and regulatory level are going to impact how we can take care of patients. A perfect example, which again, you know, many of these things are impactful, but hard to necessarily feel in certain interstices of a clinical practice. So a little bit more insulated in an academic setting. Although again, the chickens always come home to roost. But for example, prior authorizations. So I am quite certain that you in your office interface with patients who are unable to get a test in a timely fashion or the test that you want based on, you know, sort of these prior authorization rules. And so I think that LUGPA has been very active and aggressive specifically about addressing prior authorization. I think the whole House of Medicine has. And that's sort of a perfect example of a well-intended consequence that perhaps is not in the translation benefiting, certainly not benefiting us because it delays us and delays autonomy. It's probably directed at some very limited bad actors. I know I never order a non-medically indicated test. I'm sure you never do as well, but I certainly try not to. I never, I certainly never do with intent. And I don't feel like intersecting with those prior auth rules benefits my patients terribly much in general. So again, there's balancing the system, cost controls, but also the ability of a provider to make an autonomous decision in tandem. So I guess it's not really an autonomous, but a decision in tandem with his or her patient about the best test for that patient, given their disease state. That's a, excellent. And, you know, something I can appreciate how painful that whole process is, what a time sink and overall frustrating. And, and maybe I'll ask you to, like, in this specific example, walk us through the anatomy, starting with, is this something more proactive or reactive? Is it one day you're having your practice management meeting and the buzz is, oh my God, the prior auths are just totally sucking the life out of me. How does this go from an idea, a pain point, an opportunity of improvement to kick it up to the chain, get on somebody's agenda at Washington and actually do something about it? So, I mean, that is a fantastic question. And I think something which is a fairly salient example that has evolved in your and my professional lifetime is probably pharmacy benefit managers. So I don't know, you know, how much you interface with pharmacy benefit programs, but the coverage for insurance, particularly for expensive oncologic drugs, has sort of shifted to specialty pharmacies. Pharmacy benefit managers are heavily involved and invested in that process. And they tend to have, let's just say, convoluted relationships with the insurers. So they tend to be co-owned. There's a lot of white bagging and profits moving back and forth. And again, ultimately, lots of people are taking money off the table and patients seem to be paying more. And certainly the providers don't seem to be getting a significant more of that share. So that has changed the practice of delivery of medicine. So for example, a patient would walk into your office and receive a drug like Lupron, an injection, which is, is typically a Part B drug. There are also Part D drugs, which are obviously the oral oncolytics. So again, without getting too into the weeds, the point being that occasionally you would see a patient who was being told by their insurer that even though the drug was available in your office, they would have to pick it up at a pharmacy and bring it in for administration in your office. 
And so patient's ability to transport drug that perhaps needs to be inventoried appropriately or cooled appropriately. Again, these were theoretically cost-saving measures, but ultimately were not really improving quality of care and were leading to tremendous profits. And again, I am not impugning pharmacy benefit managers. They were invented for a good reason. The goal was designed to to protect patients and ensure access to generics. But these things do get deranged over time. And so now patients are struggling to get access to drug. They're being told what drugs they can take on formularies. Again, that goes to how these PBMs determine what their formularies are. And we're being limited in our ability to deliver sort of critical medications in the setting where the patients are interfacing with us, e.g. in our office. So PBMs have, over the last year, gotten a tremendous amount of attention from Congress. But this was something that was percolating in our community for probably five, seven, nine, ten years before Congress really recognized it. And that gave us an opportunity. At that point, we put ourselves together and, and were able to respond to their queries. So that was a very roundabout and long answer. But I think your point about whether we are reactive or proactive, we are always playing defense. Unfortunately, in healthcare now, I feel like the opportunity to be preemptive and aggressive about patient care and about our autonomy and our roles is almost non-existent. You are constantly playing defense. Well, I appreciate the candor on that. And um, it sounds like if there wasn't so much defense required, maybe we could be proactive and and focus on exciting new innovative initiatives more so than trying to work harder, get paid less, and be told how to do our jobs in some form or fashion. Well, so that's the summary. I think you've really broken it down. And, And again, I think that we were all raised in this milieu where it is a privilege to serve. It's a privilege to take care of patients. And we mostly don't complain. I mean, those of us who managed to make it through a surgical residency are sort of hardened to things like that. The problem is that, again, that has put us to some extent in this position really of playing defense as opposed to being, as you mentioned, the innovators, the advocator, the proponents of change. It's really hard to be at the forefront when almost every wave crashing over you is pushing you pretty deep underwater. So perhaps I'm not as much of an optimist as I should be. And I I love being able to be involved in health policy, but it is challenging. Yeah. I mean, I think as surgeons, we're used to quick wins, right? You go take somebody to the operating room who's got a kidney stone or prostate cancer and three or four hours later, problem solved. So these longer game, multi-person legislative affairs are are not going to be a um, easily visualized ROI like yesterday. So that that's challenging. No, that's actually a really good point. So I love tangible fast wins. So I'm, you know, I do female public floor. I do very few three hour operations. I like to do a sling. I'm sort of in out 30 minutes, a stone. When you said a three hour stone, I can't tell you the last time I did a three hour stone. So that would be something I would pass along to someone else at this point. So, you know, I really do enjoy solving problems and solving them quickly, efficiently, effectively. So that is anathema or, you know, entirely opposite to healthcare and policy. And you're right, the return is not quick. So this is not sexy. This is not quick. Nothing is happening overnight. And the wins are marginal. But if we don't do this, the degradation of autonomy, of 
patient access. You know, I, I'm really interested potentially to talk about, you know, protections for genetic testing. Precision medicine is huge. We're seeing these massive innovations in pharma. But concurrent to that, we're seeing LCDs, which are sort of how CMS, I don't know how familiar, but that's how they determine to some degree coverage for certain tests. And so these are essentially panels that decide that this genetic test is paid for and this genetic test is not paid for. And that was sort of a big challenge this year regarding fish testing. So again, that's sort of a perfect example of an oncology condition which we interface with where there are sort of these not necessarily arbitrary, but perhaps misguided directives that can have a huge impact and on the way that we are allowed to practice. And that's a challenge. So it's really, that was an amazing initiative where we were able to come together with AACU and AUA, a number of really leading oncologists from both academic and, and private practice milieus, and really speak to this panel about why we thought, what testing we thought was appropriate and why we thought that that needed to be protected and preserved. And I should caveat that with, there's no guarantee that we'll win, but at the very least we got to be heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, without our voice, that's the easiest one to go. Like it's a saying that's old. It's certainly not attributable to me, but I, I love it. It's, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think what you're describing is, you know, win, lose, or draw, you've, you've got to be there. Mara, let me ask you a question. Maybe I can go through a few, not to put you on the spot. What are some of the biggest health policy issues facing urologists? We'll try to keep it somewhat limited today, in your opinion. I will always bring it back to the physician fee schedule. So if you look at the conversion factor, again, these are super boring things. So spend some time looking at your RVUs and the formula by which we get paid. And again, this is from Medicare and obviously private insurers benchmark against this. So this is used as a stand-in metric for how we get paid globally. But the physician fee schedule has been on a steady downward trend really since inception in the 90s. And Everything else in healthcare has um, experienced inflationary pressures over that same interval. So the payment that, for example, a CISTO received in 1990 is actually less, both in real and adjusted dollars, in 2023. Now recognize that technology has changed a variety of things. Nonetheless, there is no one else in the healthcare system where the value of whatever it is that they bring to the table has been declining steadily. So for example, in 23, the conversion factor took globally a 3% pay cut. And we saw, you know, inflation broadly that year of seven, eight, nine, 10%. And within healthcare specifically, probably closer to 20. So the math is not really complicated. And ultimately, if what we do in that metric, in that formula where they elect to pay us, is not considered valuable, and in fact, the value is considered to decline, it is hard to imagine that we are maintaining provenance and, you know, gravitas at the table. So it really is, I do think, a, a marker for, to some degree, general esteem of physicians in this country, which is challenging the needs for medical legal reform, the need for better messaging on our parts to our patients, on our parts to patient advocacy organizations. So the physician fee schedule, number one, I think is we cannot migrate away from that. Again, I had referenced before workforce. I think that the workforce nationally is changing. Um, yeah, I don't know how much you interact with millennials. Do you train residents? A hundred percent. 
So tell me about them because I, I mean, so I related to two, but other than that, I avoid them like the plague. So, well, it's been an evolution. You know, I, uh, I'm not old, but I'm not young. And I would say that I'll give you an example. I literally seriously contemplating missing the birth of my second child because I didn't know if it would be well received for me to ask for a day off. Now, nothing about that is good or normal or something that I'm necessarily proud of, but it's intended to demonstrate my commitment to my profession, particularly as a trainee. Now, these days, I would never want anybody to feel like they shouldn't absolutely be there for the ultrasounds and whatever and the whole kind of gamut. I think it's a different, you know, it's a different perspective and I'm not and my initial viewpoint on it, to be quite candid, Mario, was, oh my gosh, like, what is going on with this next generation? But I've actually, I think, somewhat evolved to appreciate that people, what they value is evolving and maybe a little bit different from what I've valued. And these are very bright, accomplished people. I shouldn't dismiss them as lazy, et cetera. And I probably have plenty to learn. No, I mean, that's, I've had a fairly similar evolution and I'm certainly older than you. And I did indeed walk uphill in the snow both ways to school with newspaper covered feet. And I think I also missed the birth of one of my children so that I could go to work. So, um, and I, I celebrated that and I don't think that should be celebrated, but I do think that points towards some pretty significant workforce changes. We are certainly seeing more women in residency. That means that we need, well, both maternity and paternity, parental leave policies. But fundamentally, for the time being, women still have to gestate children and deal with all of the attendant issues that may accompany a pregnancy and, and postpartum. The country has not been terribly evolved in addressing that globally. Well, nationally, certainly some other countries maybe have been more so. But you're exactly right. The younger generation is speaking and neither the men nor the women want to be absent from those portions of their life where these sort of seminal events are transpiring. So I do think that is going to change our ability to run the system as lean as perhaps we had in the past. And again, I think that perhaps those payment schedules are based on the fact that 80, 90, 100, 120 hours a week was considered a normal work week. But if people aren't available to miss the rest of their life, well, you need to bulwark that with other people and other people cost other money. So obviously there are lots of conversations about scope of care and advanced practice providers and those sorts of things. But fundamentally, there really are some monetary conversations that need to happen. Now, AI is going to change medicine. AI is going to change everything. That's not really a very clever statement that I've made. Nonetheless, I don't think any of us thinks that the need for there to be human beings to take care of other human beings is going to reduce precipitously in the immediate future. So, you know, I think that's an interesting observation. You said, what are alleged regulatory priorities? So physician fee schedule is one, two, three, four through, you know, roughly 10. Patient access is always an issue. Access specifically to advanced oncology care, I think both access to and now this increasing recognition of financial toxicity was an initiative that Lugpa took up pretty avidly last year. So do you guys talk about Fintox at the sort of academic, because I didn't know what Fintox was before last year, but now I like to say that word over and over again. So, Yeah. So the short answer is yes. Probably the uh, area that I have the most research interest in is germ cell tumor patients and testicular cancer survivors, a financially vulnerable population. And whenever I'm involved with the advocacy groups, the 
number of times that financial toxicity comes up as front and center. I see it. So I think it's on our radar. I mean, you know, we're starting to see it in a, a very real way here at the UC San Diego. Absolutely love practicing here. You could be a person from Mexico down on your luck and we'll get you emergency medical and take care of you. You could be whoever we can kind of take care of patients. Recently, there's been some large uh, impasses with some big insurers. I'm just going to kind of stay out of naming them, which really impacts the ability of our patients to receive care. And, you know, when you talk about fee schedules, when I was kind of preparing the things that I thought were front and center, access to care, you touched on that, and not only advanced oncology, but rural care, the shift fee for service, you mentioned one through five, but is there going to be a shift from fee for service to value-based care? What does that look like in terms of small group, large group versus hospital versus private equity versus big box healthcare? I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that. So that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question. So the Affordable Care Act came in in 2010 and it's now 2023 and we are supposed to see a complete paradigm shift in how we're reimbursed and we are all still largely reimbursed on a fee-for-service benchmark. So even the hospitals who have the opportunity to engage in some of these risk-sharing models, really there's been very nominal innovation in this. And I'm not discounting the tremendous amount of work that any number of patient organizations, hospital systems, metropolitan systems have done. But it turns out healthcare is a big lift and reforming healthcare is a big lift. So your point is great. Value-based care has been sort of a third rail, especially for independent practices, because there really is no way for us to, there was a a commission within CMI, which was supposed to, you know, sort of accept these um, innovative packages and promulgate them and test them. But it's just been very challenging. And really, it's called CMMI. And again, there have been very few of those programs approved. So absolutely, I don't have an easy answer. We certainly follow value-based care. We were, again, part of a coalition with AACU and AUA. I know it seems like we're always a coalition with AACU and AUA. I guess I could say positively that we are, in general, aligned with AACU and AUA So for a MIPS a value program. So again, MIPS macro, sustainable growth reform, change in the fee schedule. And the idea is, you know, perhaps we can interface both independent practices and urology specific in some of these value-based care initiatives to see if we can proffer some value. But, you know, those are challenging. I mean, those are very challenging initiatives to get off the table. They're hard to explain. They're hard to metricize and do statistics on. Again, you don't want to discourage care to more complex patients, recognizing that those patients may ultimately cost more money to take care of. So there are just, you know, this is a big, messy system and hard. So, but it's a great question. And again, you put it best. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So what's really important is that we remain present and engaged because as opportunities come up, we become aware of them, we avail ourselves of them. And, you know, uh, slowly but persistently, we intercalate into the conversation and can be impactful in a way that we care about. I don't think that point can be overstated. And, you know, to me, access to care, shift from fee-for-service to value-based, workplace shortages, compensation, telehealth, prescription drugs. I mean, these are huge, huge, mega, mega issues. With that being said, we have content experts absolutely within our field. We have advocacy groups 
whether it is AACU, whether it's LUGPA versus whether it's AUA, PAC, that I think really do care about better patient care and really advocating for their constituencies. And it's not surprising to me at all that AACU, LUGPA, AUA all work together because we should inherently, <laughs> yes, the, the kind of goals are aligned here. And I, you know, I think about you know, telehealth, like Chad Elimuthal is testifying in, in front of Congress on behalf of why maintained telehealth programs are super important post-COVID. You know, we have Richika Talwar, who's done tremendous work on prescription drug reform. We, you know, you've shared some of the, the work that's been done through LUGPA to help give urology a seat at the table with respect to pharmacy benefit managers. So you know, glass half full, glass half empty. I'm an eternal optimist. And, you know, I think if we look within our own family, you know, things are things are happening. So you're absolutely right about the fact that we should be aligned. And I do think patient access underlines everything. I think that for me, it has become increasingly clear that the system is a little bit precarious and that we depend on any number of things to ensure patient access. So to your point, for example, rural access. So more than 60% of counties in the U.S. don't have a urologist. So that is not to say that everyone needs immediate access to a urologist. Certainly, we hope not. But we certainly have an aging population, and the demography suggests that much of the country is underserved as far as, as GU providers go. Academic centers are not typically located in rural locations and patients in rural locations may have to drive several hours to access specialty care. And we're fine, like the solo guy or gal, and let's be honest, historically, typically guy in a rural single practice, you know, single practitioner setting, that just doesn't exist anymore. So how do we make sure that we protect patient access? Do we need to do things to sustain the existence of rural models. So there's something called a, a workforce. There's an RVU floor for rurality in the GPCI, which is the part of how the fee schedule is calculated. And that essentially protects these rural populations or these rural providers from cuts in the fee schedule disproportionately cutting their rates. But those are sort of up on the table every year. And, you know, they get cut, they get replaced. So again, the, the point is that we all need to work together because there are patients who need to access care in any number of settings, both synchronously and asynchronously. So someone may migrate from an outpatient independent practice to an academic setting, certainly for a higher level of care. And candidly, a patient with a similar condition may not for a whole variety of reasons, absence of support, desire not to travel, age, you know, those sorts of things. So we really have to have candid conversations about the kind of care we want people delivering, in what settings. We're all going towards subspecialization. So I think most people agree you shouldn't be doing, you know, one prostate a year or a cystectomy every, you know, 18 months. On the other hand, do we really want everyone to have to relocate their life to have major operations? So that rural farmer in Kansas is probably not relocating to Manhattan to get his operation at Sloan Kettering, just on the outside, you know? So I do think those are things to think about. But we're all dependent on each other. The infrastructure, if one of us fails, we will all fail. And fundamentally, if we all fail, our patients will all fail. So it's incredibly important. Yeah, I think my sense, having only been in academic urology for my professional life, is that 
the idea of it's a us versus them when it comes to practice versus academics, community versus larger urban centers is largely of historic interest only. Everybody's involved with or interested in really just kind of taking the best care of their patients in a way that's acceptable, convenient, commensurate with life, as you described, for the patient. And I think that's why we see so much more alignment, whether that's clinical trials, whether that's advocacy among these all separate but related players. Now, one of the things that I'll also just kind of, I guess, embarrassingly admit is my first contribution to anything kind of politically relevant, monetary financial contribution took place at the AUA last year at the AUA PAC booth. And uh, it felt good. And it really started dawning on me that you know, we want all this stuff to happen, right? We want to get a fair pay. We want to have our autonomy respected. We want to be able to practice medicine in a way that's evidence-based and good for patients. And there's systemic pressures that are slowly kind of clawing away at that. And for us to actually move the needle or prevent the needle from getting moved too far back, you've got to have people that we value at the table. And I think that requires money. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you two questions that are related, Mara. Everyday urologist, how do you get involved? And can you talk, especially given your context as a health politician before you entered urology, the relationship between lobbying, money. So getting involved and the importance of actually putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, it, you've really sort of succinctly said it all. It is a fundamental of the system. So we can curse the rain or we can buy an umbrella. In order to weigh into the issues, we have to be able to have conversations with the people who are deciding about the issues. And in order to engage with them meaningfully and effectively, we have to engage with high-paid lobbyists and lawyers who help us both contextualize our message to people who are digesting just massive amounts of information on a daily basis. And I'm talking about Congressional Hill staffers and politicians. So, you know, this is not as simple as I think people tend to be reductionist and, and, you know, it's about money, but it really is about time and time is a resource and resources have to be sort of appropriated with value. And that's how we secure that resource. So that's just a fundamental fact. You can bemoan it or you can deal with it. If anybody wants to talk about finance reform and all those things, that's fine. But that's a separate issue for a different day. You need to get in front of people. And it does move people when you get in front of them. And I will say, and I'm going to implore anyone who is listening to this, figure out how, whether you go to your congressional, your state level representative, as a physician, that is meaningful and impactful because you are not just one constituent. You are all of your patient constituents in their demography. So you really speak with a very powerful voice. If you are an academic physician, you're part of a hospital institutional system, which probably is the largest taxpayer in whatever sort of metropolitan area you're in. And if you're in an independent practice, particularly if you're in a smaller community, you may well be a very significant employer in that community as well. So these are things that are extremely, extremely effective in moving hearts and minds. And the key is to get in front of people and help them understand how they can help us deliver better care. And in many ways, we have a great opportunity because everyone is going to be a patient or related to a patient at some point. I mean, God, you know, maybe some of us will make it through our entire lives without ever interfacing and needing the healthcare system. 
But I can't imagine anyone is going to get through their entire life without seeing the benefit that the healthcare system provides to someone about whom they care. So it's really an important message, but it's also in many ways a very easy message to convey. But you have to get in front of them and you have to be willing to. So you specifically asked, who can you engage with? So you can engage with your organization. So independent providers, which is essentially defined currently as anyone who's not in sort of an academic or government, e.g. VA setting, do so through, can do so through LUGPA, the American Association of Clinical Urologists. Obviously, we're all members of the AUA, and AUA does tremendous advocacy both on behalf of academic and non-academic physicians and, and really helps set the fundamentals for the house of urology. Also, again, like to your point, you're involved in testis cancer. So your patient advocacy organizations, patient advocacy is very sophisticated in lobbying Congress about the issues about which they care. So there are lots of opportunities to go to your patient advocacy organizations and say, how can we help you make your message more clear to Congress, to the legislators to whom you're talking? What what are you having trouble translating from a medical vantage point? Because patient advocacy is passionate, but not always necessarily as scientifically informed as we, you know, hope. So I think that there's really pretty significant opportunity. And then the most important thing you can do, I mean, you're right, open your wallet. We all make enough money that we can, well, perhaps not all of us, but many of us, more of us than do donate, make enough money that we can decide that we don't need the iPhone 23 this month. We can probably defray that for, you know, we can probably defer that, excuse me, for, you know, six months until Christmas and maybe, you know, put some weight behind your conviction. I love that. And, you know, maybe this will, I'll have to talk to some of my health policy friends, or maybe this could be something even within LuckBub. Like, wouldn't it be amazing to like, to model out an ROI for every dollar contributed to a LuckBub pack, a AACU pack, an AUA pack? So- I think we should put pictures of our phones. Like you can see that my screen is cracked and has been for some time. So this year I donated, for this month I donated, I'm not getting a new phone. So I, I think that's actually a really interesting point. You could, I mean, those are those are hard analyses to do, but you're absolutely right. And luck, I can tell you, and we had meetings with 30 federal legislators this year, representatives, senators from any variety of localities. And you're about to head down, it sounds like, are you going to the AUA Advocacy Summit? I am, yeah. It's my first time. I'm super excited. Oh, wonderful. It was real. I'm really sorry to be missing this year. But Dr. Langston, who you know well, will be presenting on behalf of LUGPA. I don't know if you're on any panels, but he's really looking forward to it. And I am super excited about the the workforce focus this year. Well, I, I think it's... Um... You know, we can't hear it enough. It's uh, perhaps I'm alone. I don't think I am where my sense is that for a lot of people that are largely clinical urologists or academic urologists, that that policy and advocacy seem so distant distant and and somewhat unrelatable. But as I've learned um, through the AUA, through the AUA leadership program, these types of conversation is you know, our advocacy groups want us involved, want us to contribute with however we can, and whether that's time or money, because... They want you to contribute both. Totally, totally. And I'm sure, <laughs> you know, our, our time is invaluable. That would be that would be an amazing win. And your time is your money. I mean, that's the truth. Again, we have, at LUCA, we've really worked to get people more involved from a grassroots vantage point, visiting D.C., 
A, it's a fun place to visit if you've never been, like, or or even if you've been, it's kind of cool to walk around, get to go into the Capitol buildings, those sorts of things. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for it as, you know, as a clinician, as an American, as all those sorts of things. So, you know, do it for yourself once. Just go see what you think. Go to an advocacy summit at that summit that then take you to the hell. You know, they parade you around. You get to put on your red tie and your blue jacket. I guess if you're a woman, whoever you are, wear comfortable shoes. That would be my recommendation. There's a lot of walking. Well, Mara, I think I've learned a tremendous amount. I feel like a thanks is in order because I, I get the sense there's a lot going on that I ought to be thankful for that I'm probably just not aware of. So, you know, kind of maybe some parting thoughts for the listenership and and some concrete how to get involved. So, first of all, thank you. This is fun. I love talking about policy. I think, you know, my dog is probably bored of listening to me talk to him about policy. And I love <laughs> the micro minutia. So I appreciate your patience with me today as I go off on tangents a bit. But, you know, again, I would say that all of our major organizations have fairly well-developed health policy and advocacy arms. They are all looking for people to be involved. And I do think you hit on it, Adidia. The donation of your time is probably the hardest thing to get from a busy clinician. I will also say, particularly those early in career clinicians, you're three, four, five, you've got a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a spouse who also works, a partner who works. Life is chaotic, but the decisions that are made today are going to impact your professional career and your patient's care 10, 15, 20 years hence. So donation of time, willingness to do a little bit, and that may mean traveling, those sorts of things, really pretty critical. Barring that, just give some money. And uh, if you really want to be, you know, a hero, do both and do it all the time. <laughs> so... <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mara. Yeah, also, sorry, I'm not going to get to meet up with you in person at the Ad Advocacy Summit, but surely at the AUA or, or somewhere down the way. So, Well, Langston's my better half anyway. Josh is actually, so I will say Josh works, he's political advocacy. He's the face of the HP infrastructure and really does a tremendous job with Congress. So again, we see that both on the AUA and the, you know, LUGPA side. All these organizations, it's really pretty integral policy and statute and our, our legislators, it all interplays to, to make the rules that, you know, really govern our lives, even though we don't like it or know it. So it's big stuff. Perfect. Well, have a wonderful evening, Mara. Thank you again for your for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.